Well, I got tasked with the message today of throwing better parties. And I don't know if you've ever been to a party or not. Well, I'm guessing you have. We've all had birthdays, right? Your parents love you, so you probably had a birthday, probably had an engagement party, maybe you had the wedding celebration afterwards. We all go to parties one time or another, and even the most conservative of us will end up going to a party of some type, of some sort, somehow. Now, have you ever noticed that your neighbors who aren't Christians really don't invite you to parties? Have you ever wondered why? Like, why doesn't my neighbor invite me to a party? I was living in San Diego, like Dan said, for a while, and my neighbors had the best Halloween parties. And they do what the polite neighbor thing to do is. They come on in and knock on the door and, hey, hey, Chris, just want to let you know, Friday night we're having our annual Halloween party. It's going to be a little bit loud. There'll be a bunch of people, but don't worry. No one will walk on your grass. They won't park in your driveway. And when 1030, the sound ordinance goes into effect, We'll make sure the music drops, and by midnight, everyone will be gone. And I'm like, well, thank you for being polite and letting us know. And inside, I'm like, why aren't you inviting me to your party? And then that night, sure enough, because I'm a fat kid at heart, I wake up for my midnight snack or my second dinner, and I go to the kitchen, and our kitchen window overlooked their backyard. I'm like, look at all those people having a great time in their costumes. Mine's ready to go in the closet, and here I am looking into their backyard. And so I started wondering, why is it that Christians sometimes don't get invited to other people's parties? And I think it's because Christians have a bad rap. We have a bad rap because of the way that we sometimes judge others who are far from God. I mean, think about it. God calls us to live up here at this bar, this spiritual marker. Like this is, I mean, it's not literally up here, but you get what I'm saying. This hypothetical spiritual marker that Jesus is like, this is what a God-honoring lifestyle looks like. This is how you should live if you're going to be a, a godly husband or a godly wife or just a single adult that's trying to honor Jesus. And then it gets easy for us as we live up here and we're striving to follow Jesus. And there's fruit from that, right? God blesses us. We start living out his plan for our life. There's all kinds of good stuff that happens when we start following God at that level. But at some point, someplace, Christians get so comfortable living up here, they get into bubbles with only Christians around them. And then we look off to the side and we see this worldly people. You know, people who are far from our faith, people who don't know Jesus, and they're not living at this higher calling that Jesus has called them because they don't even believe in our Bible. They don't believe in our God. And yet, at the same time, we're like, why aren't they living like us up here? Why aren't they acting like us up here? And it's easy for us to look at them and think such scum, such sinners, like who are they to live this way? And I think that's why people who are not Christ followers have got to a point where they think Christians they're kind of judgy. They kind of don't like me. They kind of don't like the way that I live and who I am. And yet we've forgotten that if they're not following Christ, who are we to force our agenda on them to say, like, you should live like Jesus because Jesus said so. And they're like, well, I don't believe in your Jesus. And so it's hard. There's a big disconnect in that. And when I read scripture, uh, I've never read a passage in scripture that pretty much tells me don't associate with people who are far from Jesus. I've just never seen it. I've never seen any section that's like, hey, if they live a different lifestyle than you, you're to not talk to them ever again. Like, cut them off cold turkey, never talk to them. I have seen verses in there that are like, be careful. You know, like if you're a recovering alcoholic, you probably shouldn't go to the bar and try to reach other alcoholics that are drunk at the bar because then you're going to probably fall back into alcoholism. You're probably going to have a relapse. But for the most part, we're to sometimes do life with people who are far from God. So that way they can experience what a person who's living for Jesus actually is like. And we could tear down some of those bad reputations that Christ followers 
have. Now, Jesus, we all know this if you're a Christ follower, and if you're new today or you're new to faith or maybe you're just checking out church and seeing what just Jesus is all about, welcome. Uh, but for all of us Christ followers, we know that Jesus lived a sinless life, right? We know that Jesus never did anything in Scripture that would say that he was close to even sinning. Yet when we look at the life of Jesus, you look at him hanging out with people who are far from God. We are seeing him hanging out with people who, you'd be, who Scripture defines as sinners. He had no problem going to things like parties, dinner parties, wedding parties. Most of the time when he's around a social gathering, it, it involved some type of gathering and party. Now hear me closely today. I just want to throw a little bit out there. I'm not telling anyone in this room to go out to the next rave or kager. Okay, that is not what I'm saying. Like, I better not hear about keg stands from anyone in this room because of Pastor Chris came and spoke at your church. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I actually have been through the Celebrate Recovery Program. Hi, my name is Chris. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ that struggles with alcohol and codependency. Okay, and if you've ever been to Celebrate Recovery, you know that those are the true party animals of the church. Like, they know how to love. They know how to have a good time. It is a great place, and we'll talk more about that later. So no way am I saying, go put yourself in harm's way today. Yet when we look at the scriptures, and specifically we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15 today, we see Jesus hanging out with people who are far from God in the context of a party. This one seemed to be more of like a dinner party setting, but if it'll be on the screen, right? Okay, so we're going to turn to Luke chapter 15, and let me set up some things that are going on here. This is a group of people called the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were like the religious elite of that day. They were the guys at the top of the food chain when it came to popularity. Everyone wanted to be like the Pharisees if you were Jewish and in their culture. And the Pharisees kind of could make life difficult. They weren't just religious leaders, but they also could get you into legal trouble. Okay, and so they didn't like Jesus because Jesus was hanging out and disrupting culture. People who are far from Jesus and far from God wanted to come hear the teachings that Jesus had. And Jewish people wanted to come hear the teachings that Jesus had. And he was ruining everything that the Pharisees had in place. So they wanted to get rid of this Jesus character so they could go back to their old style of worshiping Jesus in legalism. So they wanted to get rid of this Jesus guy because he's messing up everything. And that's where we're going to pick it up today. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying... This man, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this in Scripture, but have you ever noticed that it seems like the Bible's obsessed with the IRS? Like, they always have some line about a tax collector in there. Like, what is going on here? Well, if we actually look back into the story of what these people were going through, you get an idea. Check this out. A nation came over and takes over your country, an oppressive nation. And now they're saying, we're going to take all of your income, like big chunks of your income. But their nation is growing so quick, this one that conquered you and your country, is growing so quick that we can't bring our own tax collectors in. We have to hire from within. And so they go around to every community finding someone who will collect the taxes. Now, here's the problem. People looked at this new government as the enemy. And anyone who joined up in ranks with the enemy was a traitor. And so to them, they were a traitor. Not only were they a traitor that turned their back on their own people, their own faith, and their own country, but now they're coming around and taking food out of my baby's mouth because they're taking my money away. And also, a lot of these tax collectors have been known to like mark up the tax rate so they can like skim off the top. 
And so they were hated. No one wanted the tax collectors around. So when the Pharisees point out that Jesus is hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, he's trying, they're trying to discredit Jesus. They're trying to say, look, Jesus is hanging out with the traitor. You don't want to follow him. Look, he's hanging out with the sinners. You know, if you hang out with a sinner, that means you go from being a good boy or girl in the kingdom of God, and you've got to go down the marker of the food chain, and then you've got to do all kinds of religious practices, a ceremonial washings and blood sacrifices and all that to get clean again and get right with God. And so there was like a complex way of how we move back up that org chart when it came to being right with God. So the Pharisees are trying to discredit Jesus in this story. Because they disliked who Jesus was hanging out. But again, Jesus didn't care. He always hung out with many people, and he loved to hang out with people who culture did not like. I mean, if you go back and you read about Jesus, he hung out with sinners. He hung out with people who had leprosy. That would be like me, worse than this. This would be like you going into the person who's like got the new Delta variant of COVID, like the next third strand that's highly contagious and highly lethal, and you're hanging out with them. Like Jesus went in there. And he touched the lepers, right? That was the first pandemic. And he didn't care if he had leprosy. He went there. Jesus would hang out with the Samaritans. The Samaritans were not loved by the Jews. In fact, the Samaritans, were, they had racial slurs for them. They called them half-breeds. They didn't like them. They didn't, the two cultures fought each other. And so Jesus would always hang out with the Samaritans. And he'd love to teach stories about Samaritans to help disrupt this culture. Because Jesus was an inclusive God. He wanted everybody, all the children of the world that are his his kids that he's created to come into the family of God. He didn't care what race they were, but he tried to break down those barriers. And he always ate and hung out with people who culture saw as taboo because that's who Jesus is. He doesn't let some like man-made rule or some man-made tradition or some uncomfortable feeling from a religious elite stop him from caring for people. And if you ever go back and look at the story of Matthew, the first book of the, of the Gospels, you'll see that Matthew and Jesus got together, and where did they meet? At a party, at Matthew's house, right? So they got together. So Jesus is all about this breaking down barriers that the Pharisees didn't like. And when I look at this story, it kind of reminds me of a story I learned about a guy named Tony, Pastor Tony. Pastor Tony went on a vacation to Hawaii, and he wasn't from anywhere in that part of the world. He's from America, but a different time zone. And we all know what it's like when you go on a vacation in a different time zone, your body's all throwing off whack from the jet, right? And so Tony woke up, and it was like 2 a.m. in the morning, and he was starving. So he went down to the lobby and asked the lady if he can have a meal. And they're like, sorry, sir, the restaurant closes at like 10. You're coming here, it's 2 a.m. Like maybe the Hawaiian Waffle House down the street would be open. So go ahead and go on down the street to the Hawaiian Waffle House. So Tony takes a cab down the street to the Hawaiian Waffle House, and he sits down, and he orders, well, because he's in Hawaii, probably Spam and eggs. I don't know. That's what I'm guessing. And he's eating his meal, and some ladies walk in the door. And he's listening to them talk, and really quickly, he comes to the conclusion that they're prostitutes. They had just got done from work in the streets that evening, and they're getting their breakfast. And so he's listening to them over He's overhearing their conversation, like not intentionally eavesdropping, but it's you and them in the restaurant. Like what else are you going to do at 2 a.m. in the morning while you eat your spam and eggs? And so Tony's listening to them talk, and they get their food. They say thank you to the person who gave them the food, and they leave. And so Tony says to the person on the other side of the counter, hey, uh, do those ladies come in often? And he's like, yeah, like every morning when they get off they work, they come on in at the, about 3.30 in the morning. He's like, Cool. Hey, I have a question. One of them said their name was Agnes when they were talking, and she said she turns 39 tomorrow, and she's never had a birthday. What would you say 
if I would go to the Hawaiian dollar, tr- dollar store, you know, Dollar General, you guys got that here, right? He's going to the Hawaiian Dollar General, basically the same thing, and go get a bunch of party decorations and come back and decorate your restaurant, and tomorrow night we throw a birthday party for Agnes. And he's like, I love that. That would be great. What a good idea. I'll bake a cake. So they go on their way. He goes to the Dollar General, gets all the decorations, comes back, decorates the restaurant. The owner of the restaurant bakes a cake, and he's hanging out, waiting for 3.30 in the morning to roll around for these ladies to walk in the door. And something happens at 3 a.m. in the morning. The door opens, and about 50 women start walking in the door. Word got out. Surprise party for Agnes's birthday. All the prostitutes in Honolulu are now filling this waffle house, this Hawaiian waffle house. And he thought, well, this is a really awkward place for a pastor to be at 3 in the morning with 50 prostitutes in the Hawaiian waffle house. Like, how did I get here? But, you know, they had an agenda. They're going to have this birthday party, and so they're going forward with it. And he's hanging out, and he's waiting, and then all of a sudden they get quiet because 3.30 comes around. Agnes walks in the door, and they're like, surprise, happy birthday. Like confetti's going through the room. The birthday trumpet's, you know, the kind that looks like a lizard's tongue that sticks out. They're super excited for her. The owner of the restaurant makes the corner and comes around the, the counter with the candles on there. And, hand, and they're like, blow out the candles, blow out the candles. She makes a wish and blows out the candles and they hand her a knife to cut the cake. And she just stares at the cake. And they're like, what's wrong, Agnes? After about a minute of staring at the cake. And she's like, I've never cut a cake before. I don't even know what to do. So she put the knife down. She picked up the cake and she said, just give me a moment. I've never had a birthday cake. I want to go show my mom. And she left the restaurant and like ran down the street with the cake, leaving Tony with 50 prostitutes inside the Hawaiian Waffle House, like awkwardly silent. He's like, okay, the party just left. The birthday girl left. What do we do now? And like any good pastor, anytime there's a like awkward pregnant pause in the room, we can't help it. We've got to fill that air, that sound with like, we just got to do something. So Tony speaks up. He's like, hey, Agnes is obviously having a hard time with this love that we showed her tonight. Why don't we pray for Agnes? And so he leads the room in a prayer for Agnes. And after that, all of the prostitutes, one by one, start asking Pastor Tony to pray for them. And so he does that. He goes through one by one. And this was not his plan. He just wanted to throw a birthday party for a girl that never had a birthday. And he goes through one by one praying for each and every one of them. And eventually the party disperses, and they go on their way and go home. And then Tony could finally sit down and have another round of Spam and Eggs. And the owner of the restaurant comes over and he's like, hey, hey, you didn't tell me you were a pastor. He's like, yeah, yeah, sorry about that. It it really wasn't my goal to to like be all pastor-like. It just kind of happened. And he's like, what what, what kind, this is the owner, what kind of church do you preach at anyways? And Tony said it was like the Holy Spirit gave him the right words to say. And he paused and he looked up at him and he said, the kind of church that there was birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) And the guy was like, no way, no such church exists. That's not true. I don't go to church. I don't believe in Jesus, but I would go to your church and investigate your Jesus if that kind of church existed. And Tony looked up at him again and said, wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all? See, Tony was able to throw a birthday party without compromising his morals for a prostitute and had 50 of the island's prostitutes right there. You see how we can throw parties and care for people even though they don't match up to our religious elite? I'm not saying we should all go like 
be immoral, but I'm saying you can show that people have intrinsic value and that God loves them without ever compromising your morals. And so maybe you're thinking, well, Pastor Chris, there's no problem with that in our county. And first of all, I did a Google search. There's totally a problem with that in your county, just like there's a problem like that in our county. But let's just, I believe you, you live in the South, we're all godly here. It doesn't exist. Okay, well, I want to tell you a story about my friend that's a youth pastor. And when he got hired by a dying Baptist church that had zero youth in it, he came in as a youth pastor. He said, well, great, I thought you called me to be a youth pastor. There's no kids here. And he's like, that's why we hired you. So you would get the kids. He's like, okay, got it. Job description, get kids in church. Got it. Okay, here we go. And so he started going out to the different parts of the city where kids were. He went to the football games. He went to the nice neighborhoods. All the kids he'd meet were like, yeah, yeah, you're cool, but we're part of this church or this church or this church. We're good. And so then he eventually got to the part of the other side of the tracks where the churches didn't really go too often. And he'd hang out in the trailer parks where like dad's sitting on the porch drunk all day. And he started to get to know the, na- the parents and the kids in that neighborhood. And it was a rough crowd. And eventually they started showing up to his youth group. And before he knew it, he had 100 kids at his youth group. Now, these kids were rough. And I don't know if you've ever dealt with unchurched people. I love unchurched people. Love unchurched people. I used to be one of them. But if you ever deal with unchurched people, sometimes they don't know what's right and wrong. Like I had one unchurched guy that was like, Chris, you're going to be so proud of me. Like after I dedicated my life to Jesus and coming to church for the last two weeks, I stopped cheating on my girlfriend. Now I only have sex with my girlfriend. And I'm like, dude, okay, that's great that you're not cheating on her anymore, but we got to talk about that. Like you can't, you got to get married if you're going to do like, we've got to have some conference. He didn't know any better. It's just a baby in Christ, you know? And so you have these teens that are going through the same thing. Like the sanctification process takes a while. That spiritual formation takes a while. It doesn't happen overnight. And so you have these teens that are coming to faith and they're starting to get this like rumor out there that if you show up to that youth group, watch out, you'll get pregnant. That's the youth group you get pregnant at. That was the joke because so many pregnant teens were showing up at his youth group. And so the religious leaders of his church, the Pharisees, I mean the elders, pulled in the youth pastor and were like, what are you going to do about this? You have pregnant teens in the youth group. Thinking that he's going to say, okay, I heard it, boss, I'll, I'll kick him out. And the pastor just shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't know, throw some baby showers. That's what we're talking about, okay? You don't have to agree with everyone's life choices to show that you have love for them, okay? You don't have to agree with everyone's life choices to show that you have love for them. And as Christ followers, who we invite to the party matters. If you want to throw great parties, it's not about what type of party you're throwing. It's about who you're bringing into the party, And let me ask you this question. If I've offended you today, and I'm sorry, I'm not here to try to offend you, blame it on the the guy from California that doesn't know any better, okay? Are you more concerned with who you're befriending versus who you're offending? And I have to be a little bit honest and transparent with you. This church that Dan's talking about and I talked about that down in Mobile that he got me all hooked up with and I feel like God's called me to, you guys are wildly progressive compared to our church. We're old school Baptist church, like independent Baptist. That's like you took conservative Baptist and took another step, like old school Baptist. And like I agreed with Daniel, we'll go through this neighboring series. You'll do some, I'll do some. It's going to be wonderful. I'll come up and preach. It'll be wonderful. And then he gave me this one to do at his church. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll just, you know, kill two birds, one stone. I won't make another one for me to, I'll just preach both at my church and flip-flop it. Do one week last week there and this week here. Okay. And then when I'm writing the sermon, I'm like, I don't think I want to preach this to my conservative Baptist church. Are you kidding me? Like, 
I might have an employment issue here. They might chase me out of this church if I talk to them about throwing better parties. But when I got to this message point, it like was like God smacking me in the face. And he said, like, who are you more concerned with? Befriending the people in the community that your church needs to reach or offending the religious elite that might be in your auditorium, that might make your life a little bit difficult, that might become someone who you struggle with. And I'm like, man, God, all right, we'll go through it. So I'm going to be honest. I had like a little bit of spiritual attack. Now, I don't have any spiritual attack here because y'all can't fire me, okay? <laughs> you might make a bad phone call, but like I got no problem. You can fire Dan. So Dan, I'm sorry if I get you fired, but you're not going to fire me, so I'm not worried about that. And it reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. You see, Jesus saw a teaching opportunity. He saw the Pharisees getting upset. He saw like his new friends that were far from God being like put off because the Pharisees are being mean. He saw the Jewish people there hanging out there listening to his teaching, getting worried they were going to get in trouble. He's like, whoa, whoa, everybody calm. Everybody calm. Listen to this story. And he starts going into the story about the prodigal son. Now, how many of you have heard the story of the prodigal son? Great. I'm going to summarize it for all my friends in the room that might not have heard it. The prodigal son is a story where a son was part of a wealthy family that had a great thriving business. They had money. Like money was not a problem, but they had to work. They had to keep the business going. And he had some brothers and some other family members. But, you know, dad one day would die and I will get an inheritance from dad. Except for that guy. Well, I as in if I'm the prodigal son. But except for one day. He got tired of working. He's like, this is great, but we have enough. We don't need to work anymore. I want my inheritance now. Okay, I get that. And so he turns to his dad and he says, dad, I want my inheritance. I'm going to go on my way. And as Americans, we read through this and we don't even care. And we're like, okay, whatever. But in that day, that's like saying, dad, I wish you were dead. I hate this business. I want nothing to do with this family. I want my money now. And I want to tap out and never talk to any of you guys again. Broke the dad's heart. He gave him the money. The kid left, and he, like, just squandered it all away, doing worldly things and chasing women and partying, and all the money went away. Long story short, he found himself, like, starving and eating with animals, like the, the food that they put out for animals. He found eating and just living and, like, a homeless person, but worse, like, trying to eat with the pigs and all that, and it's just not clean environment. And eventually he thought to himself, even those who were servants in my father's household lived better than me. I'm going to go back and beg dad. I know I'm out of the family. I know that I offended the family. I know I trashed the family's reputation and name, but maybe just dad would invite me back in. And so he went back home and he asked dad, dad, can I, can I be a servant? But it didn't go down that way. What happened? Well, let's read Luke chapter 15, verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Like, Dad, Dad, calm down. I am a bad dude. Did you know what I've done? First of all, I stink because I've been hanging out with animals and eating with them. Second, I've, I've treated you wrong. I've lost all my inheritance. I've tarnished the family name. I don't deserve to be called your son. Let's keep reading. But the father said to his servants, quickly, bring my best robe, put, a, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fat and calf, kill it, let's eat and celebrate. Now we read this and we think, okay, so uh, dad saw he was cold, put a jacket on him, maybe his clothes are dirty, I don't know, maybe he didn't have shoes, we got some shoes. Uh, fat and calf, you know, okay, so they got a steak meal or something ready, uh, I mean, 
a pair of J's, a jacket, and some food? What, what's the big deal in this story? I don't get it. But in that day, there was so much more going on that if you were a Jew and you heard this, you knew that this wasn't just throwing a meal and clothing your son. This was the father making a covenant. These are symbolic gestures that you, when you make a covenant with someone that you do, you get a robe, you get a ring, you put shoes on them, you, you kill one of your best animals and slaughter and you eat and you celebrate. He's saying, son, you have come home. I accept you. You are my son. He's rightfully, re, well, he's reinstating him where he does not belong. Saying, you are now my son. You now get an inheritance. You're now part of the family. You're now back in where you were before you left. I am like accepting you all. We're going to get you put back and we're going to be a good spot from now on. And this is so different for us as Americans because we don't see all of that when we read through this verse. So be careful when you read scripture. Sometimes we miss the cultural nuances. Let's go on and read. The father said this, For my son was dead and lives again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, this story reminds me of my friend Danny. This is a photo of Danny. Danny right there at the tattoos, and that's his wife. When I met Danny, Danny was on heroin. He came to church. We had Saturday night church at my church at the time. And so he came to church. His sister brought him. He didn't really know why he was there. But I sat down with Danny after church in the parking lot and talked and talked and talked. Because when you're the recovery pastor, that's what you do. You talk to the heroin addicts. People like bring them and drop them at you like it's your problem to solve. I'm like, well, I mean... I'll pray and I'm hoping for the best, but I don't, it's not like I got to, like, I don't have like something surprise I show you to fix everything underneath my jacket, but okay, I'll sit with Danny and I'll talk with him. And so I'm sitting in the parking lot talking with Danny, and Danny's telling me his heart throbbing story of how he got into heroin. Okay, so he got into heroin one way or another, and then his wife found, found out that he's on heroin, and his wife gets into heroin as well. They start using together. One day after a great dose of heroin for him, he passed out in his bed. His wife was laying next to him. When he woke up, he rolled over to like, hey, you want to get some food? And when he touched her to shake her, her arm was cold. And he's like, honey, honey. And he got worried and started shaking her. And when she rolled over from the shaking, he saw the needle sticking out of her arm. While he was passed out, she overdosed and died. And Danny felt like he murdered his wife. Those were the words he said to me. He's like, I don't deserve to live. So Danny wasn't just on heroin. He wasn't just depressed when I met him. He was suicidal when I met him. Danny's like, I, I don't deserve to live. I, it should be a life for a life. I'm going to take myself out. And I'm just like, oh, God, help me, Jesus. I got to like somehow convince this guy of a, of a variety of things. But I'm like, hey, I got to tell you about this guy named Jesus. He died on the cross. And I got to tell you, not only did he die on the cross, his blood was so precious and so valuable for humanity that even if what you say is true, that you murdered your wife, which I don't know if I would use the word murder, but okay. His blood is so priceless that it washes that clean. It says like you are not, gonna, like, you are not guilty of that if you accept him as Lord and Savior. He could blot that out of like the things you've done wrong. And all the heroin could be blotted out. Like you got to get to know my friend Jesus. Because he loves you, Danny. And he's never stopped loving you. He created you and he's been with you. He's just waiting for you to talk to him. And so in that parking lot that night, Danny accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, which was a great, like, oh, you feel like whenever you get someone to say yes to Jesus as a pastor, you're like, yes, I did my job. And you feel like God's with you all of a sudden. Uh, and so Danny said yes to Jesus. He ended up going to detox because you don't just quit heroin cold turkey. He came back 
off of heroin, started attending Celebrate Recovery. First he came for the food, because there's always good food at Celebrate Recovery. If you're ever hungry and low on cash, date night at Celebrate Recovery, babe, let's go. <laughs> you go to Celebrate Recovery, they got the food, and then eventually he started sticking around for the people, because the people were such a fun group of people to be around. And I remember celebrating Danny's six-month sobriety day on stage. We had a cake, and he got his chip, and like we all cheered for him. It was great. And then we didn't see Danny after that. See, Danny was my friend at this point. I would go looking for Danny. I knew what park Danny lived in, what bush he called bed. He was homeless. I went looking for Danny. I couldn't find him anywhere. And San Diego's a big county. And so I'm driving around everywhere, all these parks, looking for Danny. Where's my friend? I couldn't find him. So with a broken heart, I prayed and gave him to God. I was like, God, I just pray you bring Danny home to us. And about a year passed, and Danny came randomly walking in the door one night at Celebrate Recovery. And we had like 100 people going to Celebrate Recovery at that time. And the room erupted like it was a surprise party. And I, I mean, it, just remember, it's so vivid. I remember everyone's hugging, and this is pre-COVID, so they're kissing and hugging. And in San Diego, it's multicultural. Like, you got Filipinos and Hispanics and black people. You have every race, and they're all kissing cheeks because that's what you do when you're not white. You kiss cheeks, okay? They're just a little bit more affectionate than us. And uh, it's just a beautiful thing. And they take off their jacket. One takes off their jacket and wraps it around them. Someone walks over with the soda and a plate of burgers, and Danny sits down at a table and starts to eat, and a table that usually only sits six, all of a sudden sits 14, and then there's rows of chairs circling around the table. You would think that Danny was giving the sermon for the night by the way people were sitting around that table. And I tell you, it was the most beautiful expression of what the church should be. We should always celebrate someone when they walk in the doors of this church, whether it's like, like, the hundredth time they've been here and they're living up here with Jesus and the ethical code and trying to live for Jesus, or if they've been gone for a long time, lived a horrible life, and they're now back, we should be cheering and celebrating and hugging and so excited to have them come back home. Danny, after group that night, he came to me and he said, Chris, this is the only place I know where to go where people are happy to see me, where people are excited. Everywhere I go, else in the world, I'm a bummer. But here, they're always happy to see me. I gave Danny a hug and I said, keep coming back one day at a time. Let's work the program. That was the last I'd ever see Danny. A couple weeks later, I get a phone call from his sister. We lived about 15 minutes from Tijuana, Mexico. Uh, Danny died. He ended up in Mexico, scored some drugs, and died on a bench in Tijuana. But I heard he died with a smile on his face. Now, this is my own opinion. Take it or leave it. I don't think he had a smile on his face because that was like a good score of drugs. I think he had a smile on his face because that was the first time that he got to see Jesus' face when he was crossing over. And is it fair that a guy like Danny gets to go to heaven, when we work hard to be up here and be this Christ follower with a God-honoring lifestyle and reach people for Jesus and be all squeaky clean and, and live the plan that Jesus has for our life, and then you got someone like Danny who's on drugs that never gets clean, that at some level is liable for the death of his wife who overdoses and gets in? 
And some of you might be offended that I'm talking about this stuff. But if you are, I want to say be careful. Because if you go on to read the prodigal son, because I've already talked so much too long, and I know Dan's about to kill me because the next church is going to come walk in and we're going to be one big happy church family because the first service is going to meet the second service here in a second. So I'll, I'll, I'll close it out. Don't worry, Daniel. <laughs> I've never called him that before. <laughs> Anyways, be careful. Because in the story of the prodigal son, guess what? There was another son. And while the party was going in a distance, the other son started coming home, the older son. And so he walks up and he sees a party in the house. That's as good as the beatboxing gets from me, okay? And so he sees the party and he asks the servant, what's going on? How come I'm not invited to the party? He's like, no, you are. It's good news. Your brother has come home. Your dad has done this and put a jacket on him, a ring on his finger, killed the calf. Not saying just them throwing a party and feeding him and clothing him. He's saying, no, he's back where he was. He's, he's installed back under the family tree. He's going to get another inheritance. He's getting a party thrown for him. And the son's like, no, 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 no. I've been living like this. Like the way I've been called to, being an obedient son, doing everything right. And here you let this other guy who's been living down here slide on in and get the same inheritance that I got, probably better, because he gets his first inheritance and now his second inheritance, where I've been like, he's like, dad, I've been slaving for you. Because his dad came out at this point. Dad's like, what's the commotion about? What's the problem, son? It's like, Dad, you let your son who did this, your son did this, your son did this, your son did this, and I've been doing this, and I've been slaving for you, working for the house and all this other stuff, and you treated me like this, and you've never given me a fat calf and let me have a party for all my friends. And the dad's just like, whoa, son, language matters. That's not my son. That's our family. That's your brother. And you're a son. You've never slaved for me. You're partial owner in this business. You're part of the family. You see? It's easy for us to look at those who are nothing like us and disconnect. And again, evaluate. I, I'm out of time, but in your outline, there's some questions. If you're struggling with this, think about these questions. Because of who we invite to the party matters. Would you pray with me? Hey, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you that we get the opportunity to talk about how good of a God you are. That even though we can't describe why you have a heart for prostitutes, for pregnant teens, for drug addicts, and other types of people, you do. And God, I love that you have this gracious heart, this heart full of grace that says, you don't deserve the forgiveness, but I'm gonna give it to you anyways. And God, I know that there's, this room is full of people who are prodigal sons and prodigal daughters, and I'm one of them, God. I've been bad. I've tarnished the family name before, God. And just like how you accepted me back in and gave me love, Lord, I know there's people in the room who needed to hear that. That there's no one in this room that has gone too far from Jesus for Jesus to put a jacket on you, a ring on your finger, and love you again. God, I love how you say in Luke chapter 15 that you... And the angels throw a party every time someone repents. And so if that's you, you don't have to have this big religious ceremonial experience. I'm not going to make you raise your hand or come up and do an altar call. I just want you to say yes in your heart and in your mind to Jesus. Scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit searches your hearts and minds. And so if you want to say yes to Jesus either for the first time or recommit and feel invited back into the party, he's listening. Just say yes. 
And for those that say yes in their hearts and their minds, just say, God, I accept you as my Savior, my Lord. Forgive me for the sins. I accept your forgiveness. Put someone around me, people around me to disciple me, to help me live for you. I want to see the wild, awesome plans you have for my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for letting me speak today.